It happened again this week. Kind of my morning routine is when I'm, I guess I just got to eat meat in the morning. Have you been like, like, like that? Like if I wake up in the morning, I got to have bacon, I got to have sausage, I got to have eggs, I got to have carbohydrates and bread, tortilla toast. I got to have something. So it's part of my morning routine is, is when I wake up and I'm, I'm preparing for my day by getting my breakfast ready is I have my phone out and I'm listening to a podcast or uh, oftentimes while I'm waiting for the bacon to heat up, I'll flip on the news on my phone and I'll read the different articles. And it happened again this week. It happened the week before. It happened the week before that. And it's, it seems to be this trend where you have people who are within the church maligning the name of Christ. Where you have a pastor who has sinned against somebody in the church or who sinned against the whole body of Christ or you have an entire um, committee and an organization uh, being caught covering up sins, trying to protect themselves. And really when we see those things, we are, we're wounded by them. And I don't know about you, when I see those things, I get angry because what I see happening is people being wounded in a place that should be secure and safe. You should never have a place where it's like, man, this is a safe place to be, a place where, where you can let your guard down only then to be wounded by sin. In our passage today, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but he is surrounded by large crowds of people. In fact, he's surrounded even by those who would count him an enemy. And Jesus is, is pointing out those that are false who are considered to be inside the people of God. He is exposing their false faith, their false piety. But at the same time, Jesus then holds up an example of true faith, of true piety. So that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, we have three short little stories. One in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, where Jesus asks a question of the scribes. Here we want to talk about the true object of our faith, the true object of our piety. Then we want to look at uh, verses 45 through 47. And here we have a picture painted for us of a false piety or a false faith. And then in chapter 20, ver one, 21, verses 1 through 4, we want to see this picture that Jesus holds up of a true faith, of a true piety, of what the people of God should look like. So that's what we're going to be covering today. So let's start on this conversation about true piety, talking about the object of our piety. Read, with me, read along with me as I read aloud verses 41 through 44. Then Jesus said to them, to the scribes, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Throughout this chapter, Jesus is continually confounding his enemies. They're trying to trap him 
in, in an inner church debate or an interfaith debate and he confounds them. They try to trap Jesus politically and Jesus confounds them. They try to trick Jesus theologically and he confounds them. And once again, in this passage, Jesus is confounding his enemies. They can't understand his teaching. His authority is just boggling their minds. And this question, Jesus is asking the leaders and the teachers of the day a question about the Christ or about the Messiah. He says in verse 41, the question, he said, how can they say that the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David? I don't know how old I was when I realized that the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Is anybody with me on that? Like my whole life I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. It's like Stephen Watson. No, it's, it's, not, it's not his last name, but rather that term Christ is a title. It's a Greek word that means the same thing as Messiah. So Messiah was more Old Testament language. Uh, the Greek used the word Christ, but both of those words, Messiah and Christ, both mean anointed one. They both are tied to this picture of the hope that's found in the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, there's always been this hope that a Messiah would come, that a Christ would come, that an anointed one would come to reverse the curse. And as the Old Testament progresses through the pages, what we find is more details about this Christ. At one point in time, we learn that this Christ is going to come from the family of Abraham. Another time, we learn that this Christ is going to come from the family of Judah. And then later on, we find that this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one, is going to be a descendant of David himself. We see that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So there's always been this hope within Judaism of a Christ or a Messiah or an anointed one. And Jesus here is asking the question of how can they say that the Messiah, the anointed one, is the son of David? Because in Judaism, typically, you have the son looking up to the greater, the son looking up to his father as the one who holds more respect, more honor, more, more power. But when David is describing the Christ, when David is describing the Messiah, what he is saying is the Messiah, though one day will be his descendant, is actually his Lord. This is confounding the scribes and the leaders in Jerusalem of the day. But what Jesus is saying is something very, very important. I think he is pointing to his own divinity and to his own greatness as the Messiah. What were the scribes and the leaders in Jerusalem looking for in Messiah? They were looking for a person to solve their circumstances. That's what they were looking for in a Messiah. They were looking for a person to solve their circumstances. We need a military leader, a strong, powerful political figure, a person to come in and to solve our problem. What's our problem? Our problem is occupation and subjugation by the Romans. So they were looking for a person to solve a situation. I think oftentimes when we look at our own lives, we're looking for the same solutions, aren't we? We're putting our hope 
and not in a Christ, not in a Messiah, but we are putting our hope in a change of person or situation. Think about this if you, with me, if you will. When I remember when I was in junior high, if anyone's in junior high, know that those are probably going to be like the worst years of your life. I'm just telling you up front now, at least that's been the case for me. They were rough, man. People can be mean in junior high. Uh, I know that's not you, but that's other people, right? Uh, and I remember my eighth grade summer. I was finished with junior high. I was going into high school. And I remember telling myself, high school is going to be different. And I'm going to be different. And I go into high school and I realize I'm not different. I'm the same person. But then I'm about to graduate high school. And you know what I say? College is going to be different. But you know what? College isn't different. I'm saying the same me. I'm putting my hope in a change of situation. I'm about to get married. You know what I say? I say, when I get married, I'm going to be different. What am I doing? I'm putting my hope in a change of situation. And that's oftentimes what we put our hope in. The Jews were putting their hope in a change of situation. We would be great as long as if Rome weren't here. But they are also putting their hope in a, in a, in a person as well. This warrior king who would expel their enemies. And we oftentimes put our hope in a change of person as well. We hope something like this. My life would be so much better if this other person weren't so toxic. If I could just remove this person from my life, things would be okay. Sometimes we feel that about work. Sometimes we feel that about a family member. Sometimes we think the opposite. And we think it's not removing a person that we need, but it's including a person in our lives. And if I just had this relationship, it would make things better. But a change of circumstance and a change of relationship does not solve our ultimate problem. Because our ultimate problem is not our circumstances. And our ultimate problem is not our relationship or our lack of relationship. Our ultimate problem in our lives is the fact that we are plagued by this disease called sin. The ultimate problem in our life is that we have these disordered desires that separate us from our creator. Our ultimate problem is that our, our rebellion, when it's left unrepented, leads us to this eternal separation and punishment. But there is no mere human that can fix that problem for us. What we need to fix our ultimate problem is not a, a mere human, because humans are fickle and frail. And to put your hope in a human is like putting your hope in understanding like the Texas weather. Man, they're going to change. They're going to disappoint. What we need to put our hope in is something greater than a mere human. We need to put our hope in a God-man. We need to put our hope in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, to redeem us from our sins and to give us an eternal hope that is sure. It is Christ, the Messiah, this anointed king who is the object of our faith. He's the object. He is the drive behind 
our piety. He is the drive behind our religion. He is what we want. He, 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 is, he is the fuel that drives us. And to have anything other than Christ that drives our religion, our hope, or our faith, what we find is going to be a false faith or a false piety. And Jesus points out and paints a picture of this false piety for us in Luke chapter 20 in verses 45 through 47. Let's, let's read this passage here, this picture of false piety. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive a harsher judgment. Jesus paints a picture of false piety and this picture that he paints is one that is of self-serving behavior. A false faith is a self-serving faith. Look at how Jesus describes these scribes and warns people against them. He says these scribes, they like to wear their long robes. Their long, fancy robes were a sign of their station. They were expensive and is basically a way of saying, look at me, look at my wealth. Look at how I don't have to work. Look at how my robes are clean and my hands are unsoiled. They were putting themselves above others, showing their station in life. Jesus said they also, in verse 46, they enjoy the greetings they receive in the marketplace. In these days, if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher, if you were a leader, they had these kind of official greetings that you gave to people. So if you were a scribe and you went to a marketplace, people would make a show of your appearance. Jesus said their love, what they desire, what they long for are these greetings. It was a sign not only of station, but this was a sign of stature. Jesus condemns them because they wanted the best seats, both in synagogue and also in banquets. I know um, Lindsay and I, we were able to go to a church that we used to attend like 16 years ago uh, is Redeemer Presbyterian Church in in, in Waco. We love that church. We love the pastor there. Thankful for James for bringing the word last week as well. Uh, But one thing we noticed uh, about Presbyterians is that they're a lot like Baptists and the back of the church fills up before the front of the church, right? Uh, But that wasn't the case in Judaism. In Judaism, the most honored seats were the seats that you got spat on, right? That they were right up front, right next to the scrolls, right up next to the rabbi who was reading and teaching. That's where they wanted to be because if that's where you were, it showed your station. It showed your stature. So what these people loved is they loved the greetings they received. They loved being able to sit in the important places. In banquets, they were the people who sat next to the host of the banquets. Jesus said a false piety is a self-serving piety. And it's a piety that pretends. A false piety is a piety that pretends to be righteous when it is unrighteous. 
You ever see a facade? Back in the day, I remember, I'm exposing all my, all my ignorance today. I used to not say the word facade. I used to go around saying the word facade. Um, because that's when you read it, that's what it looks like. And sometimes when you learn a word through reading, it just makes you look ignorant when you say it out loud. So I'd be like, hey, look at that facade. And they're like, no, 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 that, that's a facade. Um, but a facade is a fake front. Whenever I think of a facade, I think of like an old Western show. You ever been to one of these shows in Texas or around the country where you go and you watch like an old school like shootout you know, on, in front of the OK Corral type of places. They do it at Six Flags where someone will come out of the saloon and they got their six shooter on their hip and, and someone is across from them. They kind of take their paces and they have a shootout. Then sometimes in these Western scenes, what you do, if, if you're in the wrong spot, you can see that the entire street is fake. That you have the buildings facing you, but you find out that there's no rooms behind the facades of the building. It's empty. What Jesus is saying about these scribes is that these people's faith is like that. They look good on the outside, but there's no depth behind them. They look like a whitewashed tomb, where on the outside you have this tomb that is white, that is pure, that looks good, but on the inside it was full of rot and decay. We find that oftentimes we can look at others and criticize them for this type of faith, but we can also look at ourselves and realize oftentimes we have this type of faith as well. How do we know if we have a facade? How do we know if we have this false faith? And this would be my question. Do you find yourself pretending Do you find yourself pretending to be more holy, to be more righteous than you actually are? It's a facade. It's fake. It's a pretending. Oftentimes, when we're living a life of pretending, what we do is this is exposed because we are oftentimes comparing ourselves to other people. I'm more righteous than this other person. I'm more holy than this other person. And we tend to put our righteousness in other things. There's a book called The Gospel-Centered Life uh, by Bob Thune and Will Walker. It's one of the books that we're going through with our teenagers on on Friday mornings. Um, And in this book, he describes these different types of righteousness that we're trying to find righteousness in other things. And there were a few of them that like really hit home. I'm like, oh man, am I fake in this way? Do I, am I wearing a facade in this way by trying to find righteousness in my life outside of the righteousness of Christ? He said one of the ways that we do this is through parenting righteousness. And we say something like this. Because I do things right, my kids are well behaved. And these other kids are barbarians and they're just out of control. Or we have something like schedule righteousness. This is one of mine. This one hits home. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined. And if there's an appointment, I'm not there on time. I'm there early. And I'm not like all those flexible people who are just showing up whenever they want to. Showing up late. Or a financial righteousness. I manage my money well. Not like those other irresponsible materialistic people. 
What are we doing? We're finding our righteousness outside of Christ. And we are now comparing ourselves with other people so that we can be built up as we look down on other people. We're pretending to have righteousness. I think all of us have this innate desire to form our identity. When we're younger, oftentimes we're thinking, well, I want to be the baseball player or the basketball player, and I'm going to wrap my identity around my sport. When we get older, sometimes we say, well, I want to be the capable one. And at my work and at my job, I want to be the one that everyone looks to that says, man, they're the ones, they've got it together. Or we try and find our identity in being the good dad or the good mom or having our family together. And we try to find our identity in those things. But if we are looking to have our identity in anything other than Jesus, we're building our identity on like a shifting sand that's going to come crashing down. Because I've known good and godly parents who loved Jesus and served Jesus and their kids rebel and reject the faith. I've known people who've managed their money well, were uber responsible, but the crash in the stock market emptied their 401ks. To build our righteousness and to build our hope on anything other than Christ is to build our faith and our hope on sand. They'll be washed out from underneath us. A false faith, a false piety seeks to build up righteousness on things other than Jesus. So how can we know? This is one of my questions. This is a diagnostic question if we're pretending. And I think, I think one of those questions we can ask ourselves is, am I trying to be more righteous than I actually am? And do I have a growing understanding of my sin that I'm having to confess? One of the things about following Jesus is oftentimes the closer we get to Jesus, the more of our sin we can see. It's interesting when you read the Apostle Paul early on in Paul's writings, when he's writing different people, he'll say something like this. He'll say, I'm Paul and I'm least of the apostles. That's how he started his describing himself in his early letters. But when you look at the letters he wrote later on in his life, like in 1 Timothy, he doesn't call himself like least of the apostles. You know what he calls himself? The chief of sinners. Because almost like the closer he gets to Jesus, the more of his own sin that he sees. And if we get to a point in our lives where we think we've arrived and we think that we're there, it's a dangerous place to be. We need to have a growing awareness of our own sin. But here's the good news. You would think that if we had a growing awareness of our own sin, that that would just make us like depressed all the time, saying, woe is me because I'm undone. I'm the worst person in the world. But here's the thing. Whenever we realize the depth of our sin, but at the same time we realize that in Christ we're redeemed, as, as, as that grows in us. We realize the goodness of Christ, but we realize the brokenness of our sin. What that does is that makes us have a better understanding of the love of God that he has for us. 
too many of us, the cross in our life stays this big. But as you grow in your knowledge of sin and the goodness of God, the cross continues to grow in your estimation as well. Let us have a growing understanding of the cross in our lives. A false piety is self-serving. A false piety pretends, but a false piety also harms others. Look at what he says here in verse 47, that this false piety devours widows. Oftentimes what these leaders in Jerusalem would do to devour widows as they would take advantage of the most susceptible people. In this day and age, the people who were most vulnerable were widows. They did not have a husband as a head in their household. They didn't have income, and they were left with what their husband and what their family left for them to survive on, which oftentimes wasn't much. And Jesus is saying that these scribes and these teachers of the law would oftentimes take advantage of these people. They would go in and give them legal advice. And then after they get legal advice, they would charge them an exorbitant amount of money for their fee. They would go in and take advantage of the hospitality of the widows, eating the food of the widow that they didn't have to provide. But they keep imposing themselves, taking and draining their resources. They would make loans to these widows, loans that they knew the widows couldn't repay And when they couldn't repay their loan, they would just take everything the widow had for themselves. They were devouring those who were most susceptible. A false piety hurts other people. If you are looking at your faith and you're analyzing your faith and you see a train of hurt and broken people behind you, it might be that your faith is false, and you have a facade of righteousness that's not real. Oftentimes this happens as we condemn and belittle and criticize other people, trying to build our own estimation up by tearing other people down. But Jesus also says that a false piety will be found out. He says that twice in these three verses. Look at verse 45. Jesus is over here and he is talking to his disciples about to warn them about the scribes. But do you see what he does here? He's talking to his disciples, but I imagine him raising his voice as he's talking to his disciples so that everyone else can hear. And he says this in verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. Then again in verse 47, he says, these will receive harsher punishment. There's this idea that for those who have a false faith, a false piety, who are false teachers, that they will be found out in the end. We need to take comfort in that. Because I think oftentimes what happens is this. Whenever we open up the newspaper or we're scrolling through a news app, what we see are false Teachers with false piety found in God's flock. And what a lot of people in the world want to do is they say, look, inside this flock of God, you have a wolf. And what they want to do is they want to go in and kill the wolf and then slaughter all the sheep as well. 
They want to just throw away the whole idea and concept of church because in some churches there are wolves. But what the New Testament tells us is this. You will have wolves. You will have people with false piety and a false faith. And what the New Testament does is says, beware of them. Protect yourself from them. One of the reasons we have elders like Jeremiah and Neil is because their job is to be looking out for false teachers, for false piety and say, this isn't right and this isn't good. And their job is to protect the flock. What I'd encourage you to do is if you've been hurt by someone like that at a previous church, is don't kill the sheep in order to kill the wolf. Don't throw out the baby with the soiled bathwater. The church is God's gift. The community of faith is God's gift. There will be charlatans in the church, but we don't throw out the goodness of the blessings of God because there's also some rot in there. What we're called to do is to cut the rot out. And if we can't do it, we are told that Jesus will. Jesus warns us against a false piety, but he also points us towards a true piety. And I got like two minutes to do this point, so we'll see what happens here. All right. After Jesus paints this picture of false piety, he then turns and paints us a picture of a true piety. Verses 21, uh, verses 1 through 4 says this. Jesus looked and he saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor woman dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she has to live on. What is a true faith, a true piety, a true devotion? What does it look like? It looks like sacrifice. A true faith, a true piety looks like sacrifice. Jesus looked at the two small copper coins this widow had that she put into the offering, and he said she has put in more than everyone else. Just so you have context, these two copper coins are worth one-eighth of a penny. One-eighth of a penny. If a denarius is one day's worth of eight wages, these coins were one one-hundredth of a daily wage. So if you think about how long it would take to earn this at your job, think if you work a 10-hour day, that's 600 minutes. So one one-hundredth of 600 minutes is six minutes. So like you filling up your coffee at work is how much time it would take to earn these copper coins. Six minutes of your day. And she goes and she puts this in, and Jesus said she has put in more than all of them because that is all that she had. Her faith was a sacrificial faith based off of a devotion and a trust in God. Whenever we talk about this sacrifice, I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that this is only financial this does look financial in some aspects, but there's also, also other aspects to this financial sacrifice or this, this devotional sacrifice. What it looks like is a sacrifice of time, of resources, and ability. It's things that I see in this church 
This past weekend, we had a wall that was leaking. I don't know if you know this, but walls aren't supposed to leak. Uh, And when these walls were leaking, uh, man, people came into action. And on People's Saturday, their day off of work, we probably had four or five people in a bathroom, crowded in, cutting out sheetrock and digging through insulation, trying to find out why this wall was crying so much. Uh, But what were they doing? They were sacrificing their time. They were sacrificing their abilities. I've seen it in operation in our community groups where a need will arise in a community group, a financial need, and people come together in that community group and they take their hard-earned money and they share it with other people in need. They're sacrificing their money. We see people, this work out when, when someone gets a call late in the evening and they say, man, I'm in trouble, I'm at a hard spot, and someone says, you know what? Let's meet up and go have coffee somewhere. They're sacrificing of their time. A heart of devotion, a true heart of devotion to God is a life of sacrifice. So if you're asking yourself, am I devoted to God? I say, well, show me your sacrifice. And so many of you are doing it so well. And I want to encourage you to run the race with endurance to not grow weary in doing good, that your faith is having a good effect and God is being glorified. But there might be others of you whose faith is weak and I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. That if your sacrifice is driven by anything else other than love for him and devotion to him, We're just spinning our wheels for nothing. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's stand and pray.